Hello and welcome to the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we are starting a new series. This is episode 11 of this podcast. We just finished a series on false doctrines and talking about different practices of the modern church that don't agree with the Bible or with traditional doctrine, and I think that was a really great series. We're now moving into something a little bit different, and this is going to be a five-week series on uh, C.S. Lewis's masterpiece, Mere Christianity. If you've never read Mere Christianity, the first recommendation I would make would be to pick that book up. I actually really like the audiobook on Mere Christianity. It's very good. There's actually a version where uh, the author sounds like C.S. Lewis would have sounded like, which is cool. And we'll talk about why that's cool. And well, let me just go ahead and tell you. It's because when he originally, quote-unquote, wrote Mere Christianity, it was actually radio broadcasts. And so uh, you would have actually he- heard C.S. Lewis speak these words instead of actually uh, writing them down. They were written down later and then published as three separate books that were combined into one. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So uh, what we're going to talk about tonight is actually called The Legacy of C.S. Lewis. And it will be mostly a biography of his life, but most importantly, looking at his faith journey. So from a child to a teenager to a young man, to an adult. Um, we're going to look at well, you know, why C.S. Lewis was a Christian and then was an atheist and then uh, ended up being one of the most iconic and influential Christians of all time. So tonight we will jump into that right now as we talk about the legacy of C.S. Lewis. Okay, so let's jump in. Um, I'm going to kind of start with a little bit of just like a just basic biography on him. It's from Wikipedia. I feel like everyone who ever uses Wikipedia like apologizes for it, but like what else are we supposed to use now? I mean, we kind of all accept that it's like pretty accurate, you know, so. But I guess like in 20 years will we still be apologizing for like Wikipedia? I don't know. Like if you pulled it from an encyclopedia, you wouldn't be like, I got this from encyclopedia, you know, but anyway. We think it's outdated. What's that? Encyclopedia. Yeah, of course. Yeah, right. So like Wikipedia is actually more up to date, but somebody in like Norway edited it. I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis. Uh, you may or may not know what the C.S. St- stood for. It's Clive Staples Lewis. So there you go. Uh, he's born November 29th, uh, ni- or sorry, 1898 in Belfast, so Northern Ireland. Parents, Albert J. and Florence, Augusta Hamilton, lots of names. Um, he actually said that he disliked his name like as a young kid. So I kind of imagine just like really precocious little you know, imaginative kid. Um, he demanded to be called Jacksy. And so his friends, close friends, always called him Jack, which I think is interesting. So you hear anyone talk about him as a friend, it would have been Jack instead of C.S. Lewis. Um, and so to kind of give just a breadth of, of what he was about, he was a British novelist, a poet, academic, medievalist, literary critic, essayist, lay theologian, broadcaster, lecturer, Christian apologist, so a true Renaissance man, you could say. Um, he held academic positions at Oxford and Cambridge, so at the time those were like two of the best, um, and he's known for his literary works. I'm sure that someone in here has read more than a few of his books. Um, I think before doing this, I'd really only read some of Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, maybe The Great Divorce, maybe a couple more, but we'll talk about some of those today. Um, He's uh, good friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, we'll talk about that, who wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and uh, they both were on English faculty at Oxford together, and so then they started this group called Inklings, which you may have heard about, which uh, I was talking to a designer at, at Neon Canvas today who happens to be like a big fan of C.S. Lewis, so he was designing this little thing for me, uh, this, this smoking C.S. Lewis, um, and uh, he was like, I love C.S. Lewis, I was like, really? Like, I didn't know that, that's kind of random. 
and uh, he was talking about how he would love to go back in time and just sit with the Inklings and like talk and sit there. And I was thinking, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I feel like I'd be completely out of my element though, like these brilliant men that have written all these crazy fantasy novels and things. But anyway, all right, so let's see this. Uh, da, 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 da. So he was originally baptized in the Church of Ireland, but he fell away during his, uh, during his adolescence. He returned to Anglicanism at the age of 32. Um, he was influenced by Tolkien and a lot of friends and so on and so forth. I think that's going to be really the focus is his faith journey. So we talk about a lot of things with him, and we will, but mostly his faith journey is what's kind of interesting. Um, so his faith did eventually profoundly affect his work. His wartime radio broadcasts on the subject of Christianity brought him wide acclaim. He wrote more than 30 books, and they've been translated into more than 30 languages, and he sold like millions and millions of copies. Um, his biggest and most popular book is The Chronicles of Narnia, that series. Obviously, we know that from film and TV and all that good stuff. Um, let's see. I think one interesting thing about him is, is that uh, he's widely cited by all denominations. He's sort of seen as this kind of like lay theologian that is more um, kind of unifying than disunifying. He's not just specific to one thing, even though he was Anglican. Um, all right, so then later on in his life, this is interesting, he married a lady named Joy Davidman. And she died of cancer a few years later, and then he died in 1963 of renal failure uh, on his 65th birthday. And then lastly, that's a lot of stuff, 2013, on the 50th anniversary of his death, he was honored with a memorial at Poets Corner uh, in Westminster Abbey. Has anyone ever been there? So like everyone who's anyone's there, and so that's a pretty big deal to be there. So um, that's a pretty cool place. That's where they do the, um, what do you call it, the enunciations of the the British royalty, they do those there, and like people from like a thousand AD are like buried there and stuff. I think like um, who's the guy that wrote Canterbury Tales? Chaucer. Chaucer. I think he's like buried there. Like all these like that guy's like a thousand years old. <laughs> like what's he doing buried there? And then a lot of kings and queens and things. So anyway, all right. So that was a lot. You could have read that on Wikipedia yourself, but I think it's good to kind of catch us up on kind of what he's about if you didn't know. Uh, but again, like I said, we're going to talk mostly about the faith journey of C.S. Lewis, okay? Um, and so I think there's a lot of directions that we could go with, but I think this is what's uh, most interesting and most compelling. And so that your blanks here, there's going to be a lot of blanks tonight, and some of them are long, so bear with me. But uh, we're going to look at the journey of C.S. Lewis from being born a shallow sort of Christian, so shallow sort of Christian, to becoming a proud, self-reliant, young atheist, and I'll read these again, and ultimately maturing into one of the world's most influential Christian thinkers and authors. I'm sure that just felt like micro class or something. We're having to just fill it in really quick. So he was a shallow sort of Christian, then he became a proud, self-reliant young atheist, and then he became one of the world's most influential Christian thinkers and authors. All right. So, I think you can sum up his life if you were going to do this in like one idea. Uh, with this idea of what's called the journey for joy. So he alludes to this a lot. Um, and this is joy with a capital J. And so his, his little autobiography was called Surprised by Joy. Uh, which is kind of a play on words because he ended up marrying someone named Joy, I think it was. Um, but it's also this idea with a capital J, kind of what that means. And so the joy is not the same, and these are the blanks, as happiness or pleasure. So when we think of joy or we think of happiness, you know, people want to find joy in life. 
that's a huge long topic. I actually got the lecture on that like a couple weeks ago. Ron was there and Anna was there um, on happiness and how to find that and everything. But but joy is bigger than that. It's not just happiness. It's not just pleasure. Um, he would say that it's a deep longing for something. And here's a blank outside this life. All right. So something outside this life. You can say that it's a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. Now this could be like a philosophical like conversation we could spend 30 minutes on to say. Is that something that you feel? Is that something that's true? Is there a longing inside of us? Is that something that God guarantees? And, and we could argue about that, I guess. Um, I think that there is something in us, and I think the Bible does support this idea that there's something in us that longs for something more, or that um, you know it says in Romans that you know that God's nature is evident from nature, um, and so the existence of God just by kind of looking at the vastness of the sky and of just looking at a forest or looking down from a mountaintop, you sort of get this deeper sense of, there's gotta be something more than just randomness that created this. Um, I think it's easy to reject that and say, well, that's silliness or whatever. Um, but I think when you do that, you're sort of casting aside something inside, I think all of us as humans that would suggest something more. Um, I think in a similar way, uh, it's sort of like trying to put a square peg into a round hole. I think we have a round hole inside of us that I think God is what fills that, and so we go through our whole life trying to find happiness through pleasure, and we're trying to fill that with a square-shaped peg. You know, that'd be kind of like the classic metaphor, um, and it never works. So it might kind of work, we kind of jam it in there, and we sort of feel some pleasure, but it's never really ultimately joy. And so for C.S. Lewis, the, the point is that he tried to go through his whole life trying to fill that round hole with a square peg until he actually discovered what, what the round peg was. Okay, I'm mixing metaphors all over the place. I'm sorry. Uh, he says this in Mere Christianity. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So that's what he's alluding to, is, is that you know, if I keep trying to figure this out and I can't do it, then maybe that explains you know, that there's something else that should fill that void. Um, and so he says, uh, This is a search for true joy, the sort of romantic longing that we've all felt. And Lewis was convinced it was a central story of everyone's life. So to him, it was a big deal. Uh, it took him a while to get there. So we're going to kind of look through his life real quickly and some photos. Not a lot of photos of this guy. So this is like everything that's out there. And uh, I wouldn't bet my life this is actually even him. But, you know, it's a boy. Just kidding, no, it's him. I think it's him. Um, but uh, this is, um, anyway, <laughs> I don't know why I said that. It's funny. Um, this photo they talk about is kind of being interesting because he's like, Placed a little Santa Claus on top, top of a donkey, and the, and the guy writing this biography that I took a lot of this from was saying that it, like, you know, kind of gave evidence of his imagination at work, even as a young child or so, you know, which I think is maybe stretching him a little bit. But um, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I think even kids that don't go on to write, like, fantasy, you know, novels might put Santa on top of a donkey, but okay. But anyway, it's a cute photo nonetheless. Um, all right, so. Uh, just a little bit of background. His parents were not very pious, and so they were, you know, members of the Church of England or the Anglican Church. Uh, he says that they weren't interested in the de details of religion, but they attended regularly, and so it did not rub off on C.S. Lewis too much. Um, he says that, and I like this, he was offered only the dry husks of Christianity, um, and so it was just sort of a kind of Christianity in name only kind of a thing. Um, this, and I know nobody else is a parent in here, right? I don't want to offend anyone. But you, you may someday be, okay? Um, and so for me, this is a reminder as I look at his life and kind of the result of it, even though ultimately it was good, it could have easily maybe shifted a different way. 
is, is that we owe it to our, our children to discuss, and here's some blanks, faith, apologetics, and doctrine. So faith, apologetics, and doctrine. Um, you know, it's one thing as, as 28-year-olds or 24-year-olds or whatever to be seeking out these things, to be asking difficult questions, uh, to wrestle with your spirituality and your religion. Um, but it's sad that we, we, some of us, it takes us till 24, 25 to even start that, you know. So it, we make a lot of discussions about youth group. And I mean, the first series we started with in this group was the gospel you missed in youth group. And so I guess maybe I'm, I'm harder on youth groups than I should be, or maybe I'm not, I don't know. But uh, it's sort of like I've always heard it alluded to is if we're going to battle and we're not preparing anyone for battle, and maybe, maybe we occasionally talk about the battle, but we don't train for it. Uh, when the battle comes, we're, we're going to be in trouble, you know. Like we might have some idea of what we should do, but we're not like actually trained and ready for it. And so apologetics or studying doctrine or studying these like really heady things, the, theology and so on and so forth, um, it prepares you f- to be able to discuss those things. And so I, I think you could take 100 Christians in the average church on a Sunday and ask them to explain the gospel in five minutes. And I would think that at least half of them would fail at that. Like they would say, well, maybe get a decent version, but not a really compelling version. Or if they had 30 minutes with someone, like, you know, convince them that Jesus Christ is, you know, the Son of God and that that has bearing on your life and eternity. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I'm just here, you know? And it's like, you're 50. You've been coming to church for 50 years. Like, this is the best you can do. Um, and the argument I always make is, is if there's some other subject that you could stand up for 30 minutes and you could talk about it and you could be really fired up about it. And we all have that thing. So Tennessee football and cosmetic dentistry and radiology, you know, whatever. Um, if we could stand up for 30 minutes, and I know you all could, and you could like just give it, you know, you could just like unload it on us and be like, there. But if you can't do that about the gospel, if you can't do that about Jesus, you can't do it about the Bible, that, that's an issue. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm perfect at it or anyone else is, but um, I think it's something that's important. So um, just dragging our children to, to church on Sundays is not enough, and that may have been our experience, and that's not the worst thing that you could do on a Sunday, um, but I think there's more to it. Okay. Uh, another thing was that his parents, and, and this was C.S. Lewis's way of saying this, is that telling a child one ought to instead of allowing them, think, uh, them to think through these areas is a problem. And so he, he really didn't react very well to that idea of well, it's a list of things you need to do, but not thinking through it. Now, obviously, he would have had a really analytical mind and wanted to think through things. And I think that that's, I see that with kids sometimes where kind of their questions are stifled, especially like in a really conservative maybe realm. So, no, no, you're just not supposed to do that and don't explain it to them why. And so that can really shut a kid down too. Um, he said this is uh, why he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, actually. He felt that he could take the ideas of Christianity and he could uh, take it out of kind of the austere high church, you know, thing, which is the church he grew up in, and then kind of thrust it into a fantasy world where these ideas could be introduced in a way that wasn't quite so you ought to, if that makes sense, which is interesting. And so it would allow children to experience the truths of Christianity instead of being forced to accept them, which I think is cool. Um, so this is kind of interesting. Um, C.S. Lewis lost his mother at age nine. And I think it's interesting, I'd never seen this until I read this biography, that J.R.R. Tolkien, he lost his mother at 12, and then another really famous fantasy writer, George MacDonald Frazier, who I'd never heard of, but uh, he lost his mother at age 8. And so these were three of the greatest fantasy writers at the time, and they all lost their mother at a young age. 
and uh, not really biblically relevant, but um, it's just interesting. And so you could say that, well, maybe losing their mother at that age kind of forced them to, to kind of maybe try and escape their actual life and kind of think more in fantasy terms and things like that. So, so they were able to create a world in which they could control things, maybe. I think that's interesting. I'm not a psychologist, but I'm sure there's something there. Um, all right, so kind of moving on. A couple more photos. This is uh, C.S. Lewis and his brother there. But uh, school bully and teen, 1908 to 1917. And so he actually, between the death of his mother, and that was August of 1908, and in the fall of 1914, he attended four different boarding schools. And the last was located in Malvern, England. You can go there, I think. It's called the Cherbourg House. Um, he was not popular in boarding school, um, which I think also, it seems like, and I'm not like a literary critic, like I kind of wish, like when you read something like this, you're like, man, I'd, I'd love to do this for a living. Like I love the history of it. Like I love just thinking through what led people to write certain things and do certain things. But um, I'm sure that a lot of authors, a lot of people that create art on their own, they maybe deal with these sort of things. And so his mother dying kind of maybe pushed him towards fantasy and maybe not being popular, maybe pushed him to write in general. And so I think that's interesting. Um, he was relatively middle class. Uh, he also had a congenital thumb defect, so he wasn't good at sports. And so uh, just didn't have a lot of things going his way. Um, and so I think maybe to cope socially, he was driven to write and things like that. Uh, it was actually here that he lost his faith at Cherbourg House, this last boarding school. Uh, he says it was due to lack of solid teaching, from a frustration with prayer based on misguided theology, and then a lack of spiritual direction and instruction. So what I want to look at, for what it's worth, and I know a lot of this isn't on your sheet, so you're just having to listen, I'm sorry, but um, is, well, what happened, what, what caused him to become an atheist? Because most kids, you know, this is a whole other discussion we could have, is that you know, most kids just sort of what they call organically accept the faith beliefs of, of how they're born. So if Ryan was born in a Muslim household, probably a good chance he'd be Muslim right now. Um, if I was born in an atheist household and it was really pushed, there's a chance I'd be an atheist. Um, which is why I think we've said maybe it's seven, eight weeks ago that if our foundation was laid for us, we need to go and inspect it. And so it was laid for us 30 years ago. There's a chance that maybe it's got termites in it or something. You know, so we need to go and inspect it. We need to relay those bricks. And if we lay them exactly the same as how it was laid 30 years ago, like, hey, this was laid really well. Um, maybe I don't need to change them, but I just need to inspect it. That's great. Maybe we need to change some of those bricks. Um, but I think it's interesting to see, like, why did he become an atheist? Because uh, he started out as a Christian. All right, so the first is, let me see if I have these written out. I don't think so. Nope. Um, is a Miss G.E. Cowie. And so this was the school matron at Cherbourg, and he called her Miss C. Um, and he was in, uh, she was influential in, in his path towards atheism. Uh, so this is maybe like some people that we've known. I, a couple people come to mind that maybe like your teacher that was more interested in being friends than you know being like the adult in the equation. I had a couple of those in high school. Um, maybe she was like that. But she was spiritually immature, and she shot, sought truth and strange beliefs. Uh, and these are ones I'm not familiar with, but theosophy, Rosicrucianism. It's a popular one in spiritualism, but things that in that era were popular. And so you could say, like, when we talk about false doctrines and, like, what's popular now, like prosperity gospel, so on and so forth, like, maybe those were those, these were those things. Um, he said that uh, in their discussions, she never intended to tear down his faith, but he was profoundly interested in the supernatural. And so it was almost, he says, as Miss C had, quote, brought a candle into a room that was full of gunpowder. Um, and so he had this sort of hunger for the cult or like an interest in it, and she kind of stoked that flame. 
He said this, I do not mean that Miss C did this. Better say that the enemy did this in me, taking occasion from things she innocently said. One reason why the enemy found this so easy was that without knowing it, I was already desperately anxious to get rid of my religion. Okay. So, I know y'all aren't parents, but there's always this like thing where your kids are around adults, and you're like, I'm not so sure about this adult. We were talking about one situation. It's like, I don't know if it's such a good idea. So, um, but I would say that like, if you raise your kids and you're consistent with teaching these things and, and going over these things, I don't think that any one teacher is going to do that. And that's what C.S. Lewis said, is that maybe she kind of unknowingly like opened these doors for him, but it wasn't like she meant to. And it was like he was already willing to op- you know, walk through the door himself. Another one was a guy named Percy Harris. And this may kind of remind you of some other people. This reminds me of a specific uh, professor from college, but he called him Pogo said he was glossy all over, well-dressed, worldly, in the know, intellectual. Um, And so Lewis began to look up to him and emulate him. He said that what attracted me through Pogo was not the flesh, but the world, the desire for glitter, swagger, distinction, the desire to be in the know. I began to labor very hard to make myself into a fop, a cad, and a snob. Um, And so through that, he became kind of, he says, an apostate. And so he dropped his faith, and he said he... Dropped his faith with no sense of loss, but with the greatest relief, okay? And so I, I'm, I think of a specific professor that I felt like, again, was sort of more interested in sort of being cool or considered cool than, and this was at a Christian school, so I think it's fair to say, than uh, kind of enriching kids' faith. And maybe that's like a harsh thing to say, but um, I think that's true. I think it's easy, too, as like adults, like, and, and our kids are young, so it's like maybe easier to be, but like once they become teenagers, it's, it's kind of easy to want to kind of go lax on things and not be solid on things, or even when it comes to religion or, or like doctrine, like to, ah, it's no big deal, like we'll agree to disagree or whatever. Um, so this was kind of more about being, and all of us here are smart, you know, we're all like worldly successful. It's easy to maybe kind of give into that to the extent that we're more worldly than we are Christian, I guess. And so that's what had kind of happened here. So um, the last one, and I don't know how interesting this is to you, but Maybe we'll get to more interesting stuff for you, but uh, W.T. Kirkpatrick. This was his private tutor at age 16. This is only so relevant because I don't think anyone in here had a private tutor. Um, and so I said earlier that he was like kind of middle class. I said relatively. So he was at these boarding schools and things. But so he had it. He had a private tutor. He was really intelligent and the boarding school thing was not working out. So he got this like really intelligent seven year old man. Um, but there's a couple quotes that are kind of interesting, I think, to sort of make this make sense. He called him the Great Knock, so W.T. Kirkpatrick. Uh, This is David Downing, who wrote uh, a book, Into the Region of Awe. says, Living with this outspokenly atheistic tutor, William Kirkpatrick, Lewis found his unbelief reinforced by his reading in the natural sciences and social sciences. From the natural sciences, he gained a sense that life on Earth is just a random occurrence in a vast, empty universe. And then from the social sciences, he concluded that all the world's religions, including Christianity, could be best explained not as claims to truth, but as expressions of psychological needs and cultural values. Okay, so I know that was a mouthful, um, but I think that's how Christianity would be viewed appropriately by an agnostic or an atheist. Is is that well, the biological sciences and the natural sciences would say that this is all just a random occurrence and yada yada yada. Social sciences would say, well, this is just a social construct that's there to help people ignore the realities of suffering in life, and so on and so forth. Uh, We would say differently to both of those, right? 
and then from a life observed, uh, of course, not everything Lewis learned from his tutor was necessarily anti-Christian. In his three years of rigorous one-on-one -on -one training with Kirkpatrick, he was taught to read widely, trained how to think extremely clearly and logically, and shown how to express those thoughts with the same measure of extreme clarity and analytical precision. Years later, the converted former atheist would put this into training uh, in, into use with mere Christianity, one of the most logical and eloquent articulations to date of the things that Christians believe and why they believe them. Okay, so... Kind of got to take the good with the bad. And so he spent three years with this really intelligent guy who's very analytical, very, um, I guess, careful and academic in the way that he did things. And so even though he had a certain belief that influenced C.S. Lewis in that way, it also kind of gave him, let's say, the gunpowder or the, the talents to then analytically, analytically defend Christianity later, which I think is interesting. And so what seems sometimes is a really bad thing, maybe later on makes more sense. All right, so kind of moving on into adulthood. And I call this ups and downs of adulthood. Um, and I don't go into maybe as great a detail here, um, but he spent most of his adult life, especially young adult life, in academia. Uh, he was at Oxford and Cambridge, like I said. Before that, though, he actually entered the war. So if, if you know history, you're probably thinking, this is right around World War I. And so sure enough, he, he did go uh, at age 18 um, and fought in World War I as a member of the British Army. Um, he got injured and he came back and returned to his studies. And he talks about how he was not a very good soldier. And I oftentimes think about that. Like, I feel like I was born at the right time. Because I just, I don't think there's any time where I would have been a good soldier. Like, I watch movies where they're like, you know, that was like all the trench warfare and all that crazy stuff. And they have to, like, get out of the trench and, like, run. And it's like, there's just no way. I'd be like, nah, I can't see. You know, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. But I would just, like, not have anything to do with that. I just don't think I could do it. So I like to think that. He was super excited to get injured and be able to come back. Reminds me of Forrest Gump, too, where he has the million-dollar wound. He gets shot in the butt. I don't know if you've seen Forrest Gump. But he's like, I haven't seen a dollar of that million dollars or whatever. Anyway. Um, and so this is also interesting. So we think of C.S. Lewis, and we, we've sort of like held him in this high esteem. And, and I would say this, and I should have said it earlier, but like when you talk about an author, when you talk about a historical figure, it's really easy to sort of like, like deify them in a sense and... We do that with like Mother Teresa and Gandhi and like all these like kind of like modern like untouchable characters. They were all flawed and they all had issues and C.S. Lewis is no different. He had a lot of issues um, and so I don't think he's Jesus by any means. So I want to get that out there. Um, but it's interesting that like literally he had some like major issues and I don't exactly know why but he couldn't get a job in philosophy. So he had studied philosophy for however many years, got a PhD in it, maybe even two PhDs or something and he could not get a job. And so because of that, he was forced to seek education in English. And so he had to remain a student because he couldn't get a job. So I'm sure at the time, this was like hugely disappointing. I think it was like a year or two that he tried to get a job and just couldn't. So he decided, well, I guess I'll study English. Um, and what you could say is, is had this not happened, uh, he would have likely never written the works that we know him for. And so I think this is a universal thing that we can all say, you know what, that's true. Like closed doors at certain times in our lives Garth Brooks would call them unanswered prayers. Um, no Garth Brooks fans? Okay. Um, they often are like super disappointing, but then in hindsight, they make a lot of sense. And so the one I always think about is a girlfriend that I had when I was 18, and it, was, it didn't work out. And it was like, yeah, there is a bathroom right around that corner. Yep. Um, I, it just, it's, it seemed like the end of my life. Like, I just, I was like, why would this not work? Like, what is wrong with me, you know? And then in hindsight, I was like, I would have been miserable if I was married. Or even just girls that like I wanted to date in high school, like lots of closed doors there. 
Um, but I think they were all like good closed doors, right? Okay, so I think things you know led me to where I am now, and it was a good thing. It's just hard to understand that. Certainly, when you don't get into a program, it's like crushing. You know, if, if there's something you want to do, it's like, why would I not get in? You know, but God has a plan. You know, you have to kind of accept that and understand that. So, for C.S. Lewis, I'm sure not getting that job was a, was a major blow, and he probably would have been great at it. But maybe there's a reason. Um, you could you could say kind of like in terms of English and philosophy, he'd be studied English first. Probably would have never written his like fantasy works, um, his science fiction works. Um, and if he hadn't first done philosophy, we wouldn't get his like theological works. And so he kind of needed both to be able to do what he did. Um, and so you could also say that had he not been an atheist first, then his Christian works wouldn't have been as fully fleshed out and as good as they were because he was an atheist. So I think being an atheist, he understood both sides of the coin in such a way that he could really defend it and explain it. And I think that's, that's cool. And that is one argument that I make for being aware of multiple sides of things. So like if you're into politics or something, like you need to know what other people think so that you can actually argue it. If you're in debate team, they always do that. Like you show up to a debate club event and they're like, well, you're actually gonna argue this side. It's like, oh, I gotta argue that abortion is good, you know, or whatever, it's like, I can do it because I, I know the information. Um, I think the same should be true of apologetics or of religion is that you can't argue with someone these really essential questions without understanding the way that they think. So I think that was really important to, to Lewis. All right, so his life, and here comes some blanks, uh, was a perfect yin-yang. So philosophy and English, I don't know if I did those as blanks or not, I don't think I did. Atheism and Christianity, tragedy and success. He was both a commoner and an elite in a sense. He was a layman and a theologian. So he wasn't a trained theologian, but we see him as that. Uh, definitely ups and downs in his life, yin and yang. And so I think the big takeaway is that what we often see is disappointments first, uh, more resemble providence and purpose in hindsight. Okay. All right. So, kind of going on with his life uh, from the years of 1925 to 1930, C.S. Lewis slowly moved his thinking from a place of atheism and materialism to a place of personal theism. So it's kind of his halfway point. And I think I kind of drew out there some like little steps along the way, of from atheism to philosophy to English, now to theism, and then eventually to Christianity. And that's kind of a basic overlook of, of his life as we're looking at it. Um, and so uh, let's look at a couple people that were uh, instrumental in guiding him towards the path of Christianity. So we, we looked at the people that were kind of instrumental with, with atheism, and then we'll look at some that were instrumental with Christianity. So the first blank is authors. And so there's a few of these authors. You may recognize some of them. McDonald, Chesterton, Johnson, Spencer, Milton, Herbert. These are all Christian authors, in a sense, some of them. And so he says stuff like he found holiness in reading MacDonald and goodness in reading Chesterton. Um, Chesterton's a really famous theological author. Um, and what's interesting is he said this, is he should have embraced authors that, that shared his worldview. And so he was an atheist at the time that he was reading these things. And so he's like, I should have shared, you know, you know interests with like George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, John Stuart Mill. Uh, he found them entertaining, but too simple and lacking in depth, which is interesting. So he has a quote that I really like. He says, an atheist who wishes to remain that way ought to be more careful about what he reads, which is interesting. Um, so he was, he was drawn to the, these Christian authors more so than the, the more secular authors. Uh, and then he had a few friends. That's the next blanks, friends. Uh, so there's a guy named Ar Arthur Greaves. He says, that after my brother, he was my oldest and most intimate friend. Greaves was a Christian. There's actually a collection of the letters between these two. If you're like a real C.S. Lewis nerd, like, they've got all of them. There's, like, 296 letters, and you can read them all if you want to. Um, 
but through those letters, uh, Arthur was a Christian, and he kind of influenced the way that he thought throughout those years. Um, and it was actually in a letter to Greaves that they kind of officially say that he became a Christian in 1931. He said, I've just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ. Uh, we've already talked about the Inklings and, and who they were. Let me see if I have some photos of these people. Nope. Sorry, guys. Um, and, the, and the guys in this were uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's the most famous, another guy named Hugo Dyson. And they would get together, they would cre- critique each other's writings. And so they would, you know, like you can imagine J.R.R. Tolkien with like parts of Lord of the Rings, like sitting there and reading some of it. And uh, they would critique it, which is pretty cool. And, and then they would sit around and drink beer and talk and discuss theology and things. But those two in particular were really instrumental in, in getting him to, to, to convert. Uh, and then Walter Adams. This was an Anglican minister that he met with regularly. So even as an atheist, he would meet with this minister and, and kind of keep this dialogue going. And it had a profound impact on him. Okay, so I know that's like kind of drinking from a fire hose on like C.S. Lewis's life. And I, and I hope some of that's interesting. Like, I don't know. It's hard to maybe listen to someone talk through it. But I hope now you have like at least a little sense of kind of what he was about, where he came from, what his upbringing was like. Uh, John Piper sums all this up well. He says that both Lewis's romanticism and his rationalism, so his romanticism and his rationalism, brought him to Christ. His lifelong recurrent experience of the inbreaking of a longing he cannot explain by this world led beyond the world to God and finally to Christ. And so this longing, this, this sort of searching for joy, or this longing for joy we talked about, couldn't explain it, and it finally brought him to Christ. Also, his lifelong experience of reason and logic led him to see that, the, 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 sorry, that truth and beauty and justice and science would have no validity at, validity at all if, if there were no transcendent God in whom they were all rooted. So let me read that again. Uh, also, his lifelong experience of reason and logic led him to see that truth and beauty and justice and science would have no validity at all if there were no transcendent God in whom they were all rooted. Okay, that's a mouthful. Um, and we could probably sit and talk about whether we think that's true or not. Um, yeah, I think, there, I think there is certainly something to say about just purpose or hope in general it, without a God or without something outside of this existence. Um, it is, it's false or it's fabricated if that's all this is. And that's, I don't know, and that, I feel like I'm kind of straw manning this argument, these arguments a little bit, but um, if we really boil it down, if this is all that there is and the things end at the end of all this, we, we can sort of create hope or we can create purpose to help us deal with life. Um, and I think that, you know, really intelligent atheist agnostic would have arguments to kind of come back at this, but Really, if you boil it down, there's really no reason to have hope. I mean, we're going to die. We're going to return to nothingness. And so um, I think that his, his sense of reason and logic ultimately compelled him to think similarly to that, that, well, there has to be something beyond this, or ultimately these things mean nothing. Uh, you know, beauty, justice, truth. There would be no such thing as truth, objectively. Um, so, all right. So legacy of C.S. Lewis. We'll kind of move into this little section here. Um, one of his key skills was that he could communicate with lay people. And so at his time, like a lot of the preachers that were on the radio were like really lofty. And um, he says some funny stuff about it here. It's just that, and I'll just kind of paraphrase it, but basically um, they would speak, but no one would listen because it was just too, too lofty, too convoluted. And so he's known as the apostle to the skeptics. And so that's the blank there, the apostle to the skeptics. Um, he's able to focus on issues that all Christians agreed on. 
So when we talk about mere Christianity, the idea of that is that it's what's merely Christianity. What what is sort of the distillation of Christianity? What's you know at its base, at its foundation, what is Christianity? Um, and he's the apostle to the skeptics because he wrote, he approached religion as a skeptic. He didn't believe always, so he approached it differently. And so sort of like Paul had a conversion on the road to Damascus and. He used to kill Christians, and then he didn't. You know, we know that story. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis is kind of the apostle to the skeptics in the sense that he was a skeptic, so he could speak to that. Um, all right, let's see. All right, so Owen Barfield, he describes Lewis as three authors in one, just to kind of drive this point home. And these are the blanks, is a literary critic, a fiction author, and then a writer of Christian apologetics. I'll read that again. So he's a liter- literary critic, fiction author, and a writer of Christian apologetics. That's what I mean when I call him a renaissance man, is the books that we don't usually read by this guy would be, he did a lot of literary criticism, and that sounds super boring to me, but he wrote you know dozens and dozens of those. Fiction author, we know what his fiction was, and then a writer of Christian apologetics. We're going we're gonna to look at some of that, too. Uh, Piper described Lewis with three different but related terms. And actually, John Piper, uh, if you're a fan of his, he did an entire weekend on C.S. Lewis. And so some of this comes from that. So they spent a whole weekend talking about the guy. Um, he, de- he describes Lewis as being a romantic, a rationalist, and a Christian. And so we, we've talked a lot about kind of the romantic side, the fantasy side, um, you know, the, the English side, in a sense, the literary side, and then the rationalist side, the sort of the philosophy-based, the analytical side. So he had both of those, and then he also had a Christian side. And so uh, I think of Renaissance men like this, they're interested in a lot of different things, and they, they write a lot. So he was very prolific. He wrote 38 books, 200 essays, thousands of letters. So he just kind of never stopped. Um, I'm always really interested in kind of how people get work done and what, what is their like, workflow like, what is their like, time management. And so he had a very like, regimented life, like he would wake up, like eat a similar breakfast every day, drink coffee, he'd go and work in his little study. He would exercise for an hour and eat lunch, and then he'd go back and work till like five, and that was his day. And so I think you oftentimes find that people that are really prolific, they're very you know, regimented to do the work. And all of us are gonna be really busy in life, and so I think it's important to like, I don't know, it sounds maybe overly practical, but to like figure that out. Like I think that we're all capable of a lot more and if it means that we can have an impact in a positive sense, I think it's important to do that. I think we hear so often from people like, oh, I'm just too busy to do that. I just can't do that. You know, um, We elevate our family or that time with our family to the point of an idol. Like, well, I, I got to spend time with my family this weekend. It's like, well, do you have to? Like, I don't know. I mean, Jesus said, who's your family? <laughs> you know, like, you know, if there was a time where someone needed to see him and his, his family was there and he was like, well, I don't need to see my family. I don't think that really gels with the way that we think is, is American, certainly in the church. You know, we elevate other things and the time that we spend on those things over, you know, whatever it may be, like being active in a Bible study or going to help people in a soup kitchen or whatever it is. Um, so I think we're all capable of more. And so I like studying a guy like this because I feel like I can do a lot more than I'm doing right now and, and it can have an impact, you know, that, that lasts and leaves a legacy. Um, all right, this is kind of cool for what it's worth. And I think I said this last week, but. Lewis had the most recognized voice in London, second only to Churchill. That's a big deal. And so, uh, in today's terms, he would be like the Kim Kardashian of (laughs) media. Sorry. Uh, He's also selling more books now than he ever has, which is kind of cool. And so it said he sold like three and a half million from 2001 to 2011. 
and uh, that's the most he'd ever sold in any 10-year span. So he's not only declining, he's in his sweet spot, which is interesting. All right, so let's look at a little bit of his most famous uh, works. And uh, you can raise your hands as we get to these books and tell me if you've read this. Who has read Screw Tape Letters? Will, I'm so disappointed in you. It's your homework. It's a, so I actually picked it as a book report book because it was so small. <laughs> so like, you'd always go in there and like, call it courage or you know whatever is like like real small. Like I think Hemingway, Old Man in the Sea, is like the like smallest book. Like, I'm gonna read that. You know, it's a terrible book. I hated it. Um, but this one, I don't think I really got it either. It's pretty weird. And so if you've never read it, um, it was originally released. I think it's interesting. It's 31 individual letters in a newspaper. And then it was later combined into a book in 1942. And so the letters, if you've never read it, they're written from the demon screw tape to his nephew, Wormwood. And this is a, long, a younger and less experienced tempter or demon. And so together the two scheme for ways to lead a human man towards our father below, who's Satan, uh, while dreading the strength of the enemy, which is God. And so it's kind of this intentionally upside down book. Uh, you're reading as, as a Christian, let's say, but you're reading kind of like the way that like a demon would approach getting someone to not be a Christian, which is interesting. Um, if you've never read it, it's really, it's really cool. So this was his first truly popular work. Um, it garnered him international success and ultimately landed him on the cover of Time magazine in 1947, which is cool. He's got a devil pictured atop his <laughs> shoulder. So it's like, look, mama made, his mom had passed away, but... Look, Dad, I made Time Magazine. I've got a devil on my shoulder. It's great. Um, anyway, and here's uh, one of my favorite quotes from that book is, uh, indeed, and this is an interesting blank to have to write, I know, but indeed the safest road to hell. <laughs> Could be highway to hell, I guess, but road to hell. So, indeed the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So this is kind of like a reworking of the road to hell is paved with good intentions in a sense. Um, but this is obviously, you know, screw tape writing this. And, and the idea is, is that if you make things too dramatic, that someone's going to kind of figure out what's going on. So I think for a lot of us, if we look at, you know, how our marriage falls apart or our marriage is not falling apart, I hope. But um, how our marriage falls apart, how our relationship falls apart, how business falls apart or how your faith falls apart, it's never like a... I mean, maybe it is. Maybe a marriage falls apart because something crazy. But typically, it's a very slow thing, and you kind of turn around and you look, and it's like, how did I get here? Like, I didn't want to be here. I didn't would have never chosen to be here if I could have. But slowly over time, I got here. And so that's what this is saying. All right, The Great Divorce. Has anyone read it? You're going to have read all these, aren't you? No, okay. Oh, really? Oh. That's surprising. We have the uh, pop-up book. over. Actually, look, over my shoulder. Did anyone notice that? They're right there. That wasn't intentional. Um, we're so good about having Christian books. I'm just kidding. Um, I need to read them. They're like sitting there. I feel like reading stupid things. But anyway, Great Divorce. Uh, this drawed on inspiration from the works of St. Augustine, Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice and all that, uh, George MacDonald. And uh, it takes readers on a journey to the slopes of heaven and hell. And uh, it's filled with vivid imagery and some poignant discussions on joy and redemption. And it asks us to consider the ultimate destination of every soul. So basically, you're on this bus that's headed through these areas, and it's kind of interesting. So I've not read it yet. Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, so seven-book series. It started with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is his most famous book. Um, and it's here that readers were first introduced to the magical realm of Narnia and Aslan the Lion. And it's also here that the wonder and beauty of Jesus' death was rendered in stunning metaphor. Uh, we've had three movies made. Fourth maybe is coming. 
100 million uh, copies in 40 languages, it says, and it's his most famous and beloved work. All right, A Grief Observed. And this was interesting because he actually wrote it under a pseudonym originally, so N.W. Clerk, and then it was later released after his death under his name. Um, but I've never read this one. I wasn't familiar with this one, but this is uh, after his wife died. And so he, lo he lost his wife, and he had not been married most of his life, and he got married older in age and married for four years. Apparently they were a really great match, and, and then she died. And so uh, it very candidly describes Lewis's anger at God and his struggle to find faith amidst his pain. And between venting his frustrations and his exploring his grief, Lewis finds a new understanding of God's place in his life. It's very personal and very raw and will resonate with anyone who suffered loss of a loved one. Okay, so maybe some books you can go pick up and read if you're interested in it. Uh, obviously, the one that we're going to be talking about the next four weeks is Mere Christianity, so that's what we've been kind of coming around to get around to. Um, I think as we alluded to earlier, the book was released like much later, like 10 years later, 1952, uh, and it was a bunch of radio talks that the, the BBC actually signed him up to do because during the war, it was really bad. If you know anything about World War II, it was really, really bad in London. He was outside of London, so there weren't as many bombings where he was at, but in London in particular, it was really terrible. So like, I don't know what the percentage, but I think it was like 80% of London was destroyed. It was like insane. I mean, it was like really, really bad. If you could even imagine like, let's say it's 50% of Memphis was destroyed. Like, it's insane. But London, which had been there for so long. So anyway, um, and so they asked him to do these radio talks to try and you know give hope to British people, which I think is interesting. And so he did the talks between 1941 and 1944. And in that, that's where he became so well-known. Um, and he was at Oxford during this time. And so it is a classic of Christian apologetics, maybe one of the most uh, popular theological books or apologetics books. And so there's three separate pamphlets, and I wanted you to write them down because that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. The first is called The Case for Christianity. It was 1942, which is a Lee Strobel book of the same title. I don't know if you've read that. But anyway, then there's Christian behavior, technically with a U in it. <laughs> so if you want to be uh, accurate, Christian behavior. And then Beyond Personality. Those titles will mean more after we study them, I think. All right, so just a kind of a little bit of background on mere Christianity for what it's worth. It was voted Best Book of the 20th Century by Christianity Today in 2000 and in 2006. It placed third in Christianity Today's list of the most influential books among evangelicals since 1945, and then it sold millions of copies worldwide. Um, I couldn't find out how many copies it sold, but it's millions. It's a lot. Um, and so I think he was interested in presenting a reasonable case for Christianity and not necessarily in getting into like little tiny details. Um, and he also refuted popular objections to Christianity. And so I think that's kind of how he approached this radio broadcast was, again, like in this midst of war, and that's what everyone's mind was on. So when you read the book, he alludes most of the book to like war images, because that would have been like all we could think about. And I don't know that we've really ever had a time in our lives that is similar to that, that just was like all consuming. The few times that I was having to point to some would be like this past election. It seemed like literally all anyone could talk about. Maybe 9-11. Maybe that's it. Like I don't know if we, and I don't think either one approaches World War II, where people literally thought existence was going to come to an end, perhaps. Um, but obviously that influences P 
people's objections and people's issues with Christianity and issues with God. And so a question like, how could a good God allow pain to exist in the world? Um, it's usually said that's like one of the most common objections to Christianity or to God. And so he answers that question and gets into that question. And he wanted to also reunite the whole of Christianity. So around, again, mere Christianity. Uh, it wasn't an attempt to tell people what denomination to join. And I think we get too focused on that kind of stuff. But he was focused on the major parts. He actually sent it to like different clergy from four different denominations to have them check and give them feedback because you really didn't want it to be like offensive or more focused on one or the other. And I think that's kind of cool. Um, all right, so some selected famous quotes. We don't have a whole lot left. And then I want to kind of sit and just chat about some of this. But I love these quotes, and I know you've been listening to me talk so much, so you have to listen to this some more. I'm sorry. But this one's great. You may have heard this. This is the one about a living house. So imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Alright, another one I really like. This is such a like immensely popular idea that we forget that somebody had to create it, I guess. Um, but this is the idea of Jesus being either liar or lunatic or Lord, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, so, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I wish I could write like that. So good. All right. And another one. All right. So my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? All right. So that quote... Um, I think it's fair. I think this idea that we would even call something immoral or wrong, it sort of assumes a sort of standard for those things. And now you could kind of make a sociological argument like, well, we kind of have a consensus idea sociologically on what is, what is good for society and so on and so forth. But I would argue that within us exists a, a yearning or an understanding of morality, that things despite society would, would be considered wrong. Um, and that argument can go back and forth. But um, anyway, I think that points to God and, and an objective source of morality. And the Bible will tell us that you know, we all have a conscience that compels us um, when things are wrong. Like we all feel that. And I don't think it's just sociological. But anyway. All right, so, and then this last one right here. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery... 
The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. All right, so, and a lot more that he said that's really good that we'll get into. Um, but I really like that one. And that kind of kind of gets back to this idea of this, this longing for joy, this longing for purpose, this longing for something bigger than ourselves that fills something inside of us. And so he says that the, you know, the whole human history has been an attempt for people to, to fill that longing, to find joy. And that ultimately the things they do are really destructive. Um, he also says pretty famously in talking about pride that, that I think it's every sin in human history and every major tragedy has had pride at its foundation. And so I think that's true of a lot of these things for sure. All right, so conclusion, we'll get into this, is, uh, is, is another quote. And I'd found this in July, kind of preparing for this, and it really made a lot of sense with the whole false doctrines thing, and, and it's funny how things will connect themselves. Um, but uh, I think we're in an age, and this may not be true of the churches you go to, and it's not entirely true of my church, but I think we're re- reaching this age where we, we want to be pro- progressive in everything. Like we, we don't want to feel like that we're certainly regressive, but also that we're just standing still. So you'll see this in the medical world. Like you'll see... I mean, part of that's just what you got to do. I mean, from a research perspective, you can't just do studies that were relevant in 1950. You know, you have to keep progressing science. You've got to keep going for something new. And so if you just study interleukin 21, well, you need to discover 22 and you need to do tests on it, right? You need to progress. Um, and so I'm sure radiology is the same thing. I'm sure there's, well, it's not enough to have two-dimensional. We've got to have three-dimensional. And this three-dimensional is not high resolution enough. And it, it's too much exposure so we're gonna, you know it's always like this attempt for progression uh, the problem is is that when we get to doctrine and truths that were established you know before time that this kind of yearning for progression is oftentimes misplaced um, and so that progression shouldn't be the goal what should be the goal as it is true of science is, is truth is understanding um, I think it should be the goal of Christianity and our faith walk is not progression for progression's sake it should be truth and understanding of that and some things we need to progress on, but not everything. And so I see kind of in, in young people that are ambitious and that they want to turn over all the rocks that have already been turned over. And there's some good in that, but I think it can be to our detriment sometimes. And so I say here that it's going to be nice to spend five weeks focused on an author who, despite his high IQ and propensity for the minutia of philosophy, sought to instead, instead unify Christians around the central tenets that are foundational to our faith. And so, you know, who else in history could have focused on the tiniest little, you know, minuscule things of faith and a- analyzed it to death, but he instead kind of stepped out of that and st- kind of stepped out of his ivory palace and, and, and talked about common things and lay things. I think that's really interesting. That Obviously, he would have had to intentionally do that. And so you think about him with these Inklings guys talking about things that are well beyond what we're going to talk about, but then choosing to talk about really simple things that a farmer outside of London could have understood and, and been, you know, changed by. All right, so here is what this quote is, um, is that we all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that, ca- in that case, and here are your blanks, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. All right, so I'll read again. We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. So when I read this, like back in July, it was this was like really hit me hard at the time. It was like, oh, this is so great. It's 
from you know 1940 or 50 or something. So it's like ah, this is good. So some some truths are, are you know always true. Um, all right, so let me kind of wrap up with a, a quote here on uh, from John Piper, and this was kind of sort of like the conclusion of his little you know weekend on him. Is that one of the things that makes Lewis admirable to me, in spite of all our doctrinal differences uh, and their their significant troubling? Piper's always talking about doctrine. Like, just leave it alone for a second, man. Okay. But anyway, one of the, one of the things that makes Lewis uh, admirable to me is this crystal clear, unashamed belief that people are lost without Christ, and that every Christian should try and win them, including world class scholars of medieval and Renaissance literature. And so, unlike many tentative, hidden, vague, approval craving intellectual Christians. Lewis says outright, the salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. And again, the glory of God, and as our only means of glorifying Him, the salvation of human souls is the real business of life. So, um, it should be the same for all of us. Christians and parents, as wives, as husbands, as radiologists, as dentists, as MLGW engineers. Um, and so on and so forth, uh, despite our human and cultural associations, our real business of life should be the salvation of human souls. Okay? And so my prayer is the remaining four weeks, when we study mere Christianity, it helps kind of reunite in us a desire to center our lives around the real business of life, which is the salvation of human souls. So I want to thank you for tuning in, for listening, and I don't have a lot of time because this is about to hit an hour and I feel like that's too long. Um, we had a really good group, really enjoyed it. I know it's a long and really kind of thick topic there to go through someone's life in, in like 50 minutes, uh, but hopefully you were, uh, learned some stuff about C.S. Lewis, but also learned some stuff about yourself. I think that as professionals, we have a lot of options with what we do with our careers and also what we do with our free time. And I think that there's a lot that we can do that won't matter in five minutes or five months or even five years. Or there are things that we can do that, you know, are about the business of saving souls that have uh, impact, you know, millions and billions and, you know, years from now. So things that matter for all eternity and that matter forever. And so I think that when I look at the life of C.S. Lewis, I see a man that was talented in many ways and could have done many things and chose to spend a good portion of that teaching common pe people about uh, Christianity and getting them to think through these questions. And certainly with, with mere Christianity, that's what he did. So I look forward to spending four more weeks together learning about mere Christianity and studying it and asking a lot of the questions that C.S. Lewis asked, and I, and I really look forward to doing that here with you. So we will be back next Monday, and we will start with part one of mere Christianity, and I really look forward to that. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time.